Your attention, please. Paul and Alex are required to proceed to the gate immediately. What? No way. What is happening here? This is the last call for the Layovers podcast. Really? Come on, man. This is our thing. We got this. Oh, yeah. And we made it. Of course, geeks. Flight 50 to Narita, Alex. 50? 50? Can you believe it? No. 50 episodes of this. Know. Wow. It's more than two years. Amazing. Which definitely shows that we've not done a good job of doing this weekly. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. It's been a long time we've wow, given 50. up on that hope. Yeah. That 50, that's exciting. It's a nice milestone to have reached. Yeah, this is why we decided to do uh, Narita. It's an airport that I wanted to do for a long time. There's a lot of history behind Narita, and I wanted to tell it. So I'm going to try not to be too long, because I could do an entire podcast episode just in Narita. You've been there uh, when you traveled? No. Or not? No, only Hannah. That, right? Only Haneda, yeah. because that's what everybody says. Is just if you can fly there for the reasons that I'm sure that you'll get into, but mainly because it's much closer to Tokyo itself. Yeah, back then when I used to live in Tokyo, it was almost a no-brainer. You had to fly to Narita. I mean, I'll tell the entire story at the end of the show, but this airport has a special place in my heart too. But since we are in Asia and in Japan, let's talk about ANA. ANA uh, just uh, announced a special livery for their new A380. Wow, I really wasn't love that it. cool, and it was done through competition. Yeah. So people could submit their suggested liveries, and this one that's won is just stunning, isn't it? It's like a sea turtle and like little baby sea turtles. It's one of the first liveries on an A380 that actually looks like what it's supposed to be. It goes across the entire front of the airplane as well. It's a really beautiful livery. And for some reason, I find it very fitting for the 380. You know, that's a very big, fat plane. And this just works so perfectly. So yeah, as you said, they had like a competition. They received more than 2,000 submissions. I'll put the link in the show notes so you can be able to see the other. But this is really, for me, the best. And they made a great decision. I mean, some people will find it too childish or whatever, but I think it's really, really cool. That A380 apparently will fly from Tokyo to Hawaii, a very popular destination for honeymoons. That'll be your chance if you want to fly it. And uh, ANA is receiving two others A380s later. We don't know if they're going to have also special liveries or not. Only three. I think it's going to be the smallest uh, A380 <laughs> fleet on the planet. I mean, Yeah, and they but... were the... I don't think they had any intention of buying them until the whole Skymark thing. They picked those up for probably a very, very good price for them to have this tiny, tiny fleet. It'll be interesting to see what they do with them in the future, but it just adds to their collection of very cool liveries, what with all the Star Wars stuff they're, oh, they, yeah. they've I rolled out and are continuing to roll out. <laughs> I still haven't flown through Star Wars once. I was looking yesterday at uh, Google Flights to find a way to... They don't announce where it is, so you have to find friends at ANA or friends who are a lot of status, yeah. or you can inquire at ANA, they will tell you the routes. I tried to remember when we went both to Japan, it was more than a year ago now, I tried and I failed, so I hope to be able to fly one of these Star Wars ones next time, but ah, damn it. I'll end up. <laughs> oh, by the way, the 380 for those, don't be too, too, too excited because it won't come before 2019. So we have some yeah, time yeah, before. A little the, bit the, of time, yeah. Since I'm on ANA, another little tidbit of information. They've tested drone eye view full plane inspections at Osaka International Airport. They've done one of the first tests. It's the ANA Digital Design Lab. So, you know, we've talked about it before. I think uh, EasyJet was trying that and Airbus was proposing that as well. So instead of the pilots going around the 
airplane. They will use a drone. So they've done one test. They say it's not ready yet to be deployed all across uh, airports in Japan and elsewhere. But I mean, I'm, I'm sure in our lifetimes, we'll see drones doing that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, like you said, EasyJet have been doing it. And it's a natural progression for that type of regular maintenance to deploy something that looks for obvious things that can then be, you know, a human can go and look a little bit closer. But it, yeah, it makes total sense. And it's so interesting to see more and more people rolling this out. Apparently, it flies at a speed of one meter per second. It captures wow. images. The test was done on a, on a Dreamliner, actually. And it did the whole thing in 10 minutes. And of course, then it would deliver images if there were scratches and stuff. And then they would make a decision. Is the plane fit to fly or not? We'll see when that happens, but I'm sure at some point we'll see drones hovering around our aircraft. Oh, yeah, in absolutely. Our it's, it's an inevitability. I think it's a good idea. I really do. Since we're in Japan, let's stay with the other, uh, Japan Airlines, JAL. So JAL was in bankruptcy a few years ago, as you might have heard, and they have a school for pilots. And this is a crazy story. Because it went to bankruptcy, they had to stop the training, and they had to, of course, freeze the hiring of pilots. They will finally enroll 100 co-pilots who were supposed to fly around 2010 and will only now be starting flying domestic flights in general. So that probably is the longest ever pause for your training. So imagine you you decide like seven <laughs> years ago, 10 years ago, that you want to be a pilot and you have, they had to wait this huge period of time before now being finally able to be in the cockpit. That's wow, amazing. But, but at least they're hiring them. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's true. At least they actually went through on their promise. But holy cow. Yeah, you may as well just start from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stay in Asia. Beer, Betsy. Yeah, Do you want to talk about that cool? one? So yeah, this is a. <laughs> and, and Cathay Pacific have come up with this beer that they've specially brewed for consumption at altitude because you know as we've talked about or at least alluded to in past episodes, the taste perception and the way your taste buds actually work changes at altitude and with cabin pressure and cabin humidity. So. Cathay worked with a local Hong Kong brewery to come up with this type of beer. Well, it's, a, it's, it's not a type of beer. It's, it's a beer, but it's called Betsy, which is also the name of the very first Cathay Pacific airplane, which was a DC-3 in DC-3, yeah. It's I, very I mean, cool. It's being rolled out now? Do you yes, plan to being, fly Cathay Pacific? Yeah, I'm very sure I will in the three months that this is going to be featured. And it's only on certain routes, I think London and Manchester. But it looks fantastic. The science behind it is really good. There's so many kind of flavorful nods towards indigenous Hong Kong plants and, and, and well, not wildlife, but, you know, uh, <laughs> they got the hops from the UK. <laughs> and actually, if you're in Hong Kong, you can go to a few bars and restaurants and hotels and try it. And also in the lounge in London as well. So even if you're not flying on Cathay, you can still try it. Sweetness and saltiness are suppressed in flight. So we use some fruit and honey to accentuate the sweetness. And of course, like you said, the hop comes from England. Uh, I really want to try that. So yeah, as you said, it's only on flights from Gatwick, Heathrow and Manchester, back and forth uh, Hong Kong. But yeah, uh, there's a few spots. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, one I love, it's called Grey Deluxe, Cafe Grey Deluxe in Hong Kong. I've been there many times. I'll make sure to make a stop next time to try it because I don't fly, sadly, Cafe Pacific because, guys, you're too expensive. <laughs> I will go to that Grey Deluxe and I will try that beer. And like you say, it's only for a limited period of time, three months, I think, like you said, right? Yeah, not so. very long. Starting, well, it's just started last week. So I think this is a neat thing when so many airlines are spending a lot of money on hard product differentiation or IFE or whatever it might be this is a neat little innovation that's got people talking and yeah I, 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 I'm, I'm impressed I mean I haven't even tried the beer yet and I'm already impressed 
We talked about uh, alcohol in the last episode, and since then, Gulliver, that uh, op-ed on The Economist, had another feature on what to drink at 30,000 feet. Just one quote that I didn't know. Apparently, bubbly does not fare well in altitude. It's too acidic to taste nice. So basically, the ultimate jet-setter drink is bad in altitude. That's really ironic, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of what they give you by default when you're flying in one of the premium cabins. They just give it to you, and it's the least effective or least loses most of its sort of ground level value and greatness at that altitude, which, yeah, as you say, very ironic. I still like to drink champagne in flights. So I will, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe I'm just an there's a psychological old, stupid, component. Yeah, there, yeah, there? probably. You're right. Thank you, Mr. Therapist. Um, <laughs> uh, since we, since we're in still around that region, uh, I had three different listeners sending me the beat of news the same day. Uh, it was about a week, ten days ago. We're recording today, March seventh, uh, twenty seventeen. It was the rumor, which is not new, about Earth China acquiring Cathay Pacific. We never addressed it, but since I received these news, including Genk and I, I don't remember the names of the two others. I'm sorry, guys, I don't have them in front of me. Well, I'm going to ask the lover of Cathay Pacific, is Earth China acquiring Cathay Pacific, Alex? I actually hadn't heard this rumor until you told me about it. I just don't think it's going to happen, even though Cathay is struggling a little bit at the moment for reasons we've talked about in the past. I just don't see it happening. And the main reason that I don't see it happening is because, well, there's two. I don't think that the way the Hong Kong legislative framework would allow for it. The general law, what's the name of it? The Hong Kong law or something? Yeah, the, the, Constitution the, the basic law. Basic uh, law, thank you. In Hong Kong. And also, Cathay and Air China are already reciprocal shareholders in each other. So what's, I don't understand the benefit of one buying out the other when they own substantial chunks of each other. So, you know, I think whenever an airline starts to go through any type of difficulty, rumors start to swirl and mergers and acquisitions and this type of thing always swirl. I just can't see it happening. I do think that Cathay will go through some sort of restructure. Well, they've, they've announced that this summer they will have some type of restructuring yeah. happening. We don't know what kind yeah, it will that's, be. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, I, it'll be interesting to see what form that takes, but I just can't see this happening. I really don't. You know, even though, as you pointed out in a conversation that, that we had, the, the Chinese airlines are on acquisition sprees at the moment, both for airlines and for airports and everything in between. I just don't see this happening. They have a lot of cash to spend, it's true. Plus, uh, please forgive me, Chinese friends and listeners, we have some actually. Up to now, these types of, and I'm not talking airline, I'm talking in general, these types of M&As, didn't really fare well. The Chinese have not been very successful at running large uh, global companies. So, uh, of course, since uh, Alex loves uh, Cathay that much, we hope that if that ever happens, Cathay will uh, sustain itself and not be uh, damaged because of such a uh, merger and acquisition. Yeah, that would be disappointing. Since we're in China, I was doing some research about Narita and Haneda where we was preparing this show, and I came upon an airline that I had already heard the name of, but never really looked into. Have you heard about Spring Airlines? Spring in China? Yeah, ch.com. That's yes, the website. I have. It's just baffling because I've looked at the pricing they're offering. <laughs> My goodness I haven't sake. looked at the pricing. 
Ah, uh, well, I can tell you, I can give you one or two that I've, I found, especially one, uh, Shanghai Pudong to Nagoya, since we're talking about Asia and we're in Japan today, it's 10 cents dollars. What? I am not kidding. That's a promo price. The normal price is $1.30. This is not a joke. I, I went, I tried many things. You can have tickets that go up to $50 for certain routes. You can have even like the front row seats where some kind of business class, whatever, they go like sometimes for $100. But you have routes at 10 cents. I wasn't able to figure out that include the airport fee, I guess not. But still, that's completely baffling to me. How the hell does me. that work? <laughs> I just don't know, man. CH.com. Guys, I mean, if you live in China, I'm sure you have stuff to say. The reason I knew the airline is because you remember back then when Ryanair was talking about further reducing the legroom and having almost standing seats? Spring Airlines was the other airline that was interested in having this. They already have a very, very, I mean, apparently the, the seats are super, super crammed and they want to go to standing seats, a 24-inch, like semi-standing or something. They didn't get the authorization yet. I don't know if he actually even asked if it's just marketing, but like $0.1 for a flight. I mean, what what are we talking about? This is really low cost to the <laughs> That's max. That's amazing. I think it's probably a good strategy because, you know, we've talked about this before that the Chinese domestic airline space is going through a huge boom and it's showing mm -hmm. no signs of slowing down. So I think there will be room. If there's room in America for things like Spirit and Frontier and to an extent Southwest and all of the higher end, quote unquote, higher end airlines serving the, the full service passenger in a country of 370 million people, then when you've got 1.x billion in China, yeah, there's yeah, more yeah, than, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, with a, an expanding middle class. So I, you know, there's definitely room for it. There's definitely room for it. Uh, you just mentioned the acquisitions that the Chinese were doing and HNA, which is the parent company of Hainan Airlines, which I haven't flown yet. I want to want to try them. Just basically bought, not entirely, but almost entirely the second biggest airport in Frankfurt. Yeah, they're buying 82.5% of Frankfurt Hahn. What I found when I was digging into this article a little bit more is that, as is very common in Asia, these groups of aviation firms own chunks of several different airlines and ground handling companies. So it's not like it's just Hainan Airlines. They have their fingers in many, many different airlines, many ground handling companies, catering companies. So they're building these aviation empires. HNA already own completely 13 domestic airports in China mm -hmm. as well. So they're just growing this uh, this holding company. So it's, it's, it's a really fascinating strategy. And I think it's what Etihad were trying to do with their slightly eclectic acquisition strategy that seems yep. to have fallen on its face but so yeah 82.5 percent of frankfurt han which is pretty yep. pretty amazing it's also uh please forgive me for using that term tradition it's something we see a lot in uh korea china japan having these big conglomerates yes. you know there's that's why i use the term very tradition. diverse K as well yeah cables in korea etc etc like where they really acquire tons of interest in s similar verticals to achieve some kind of big mass it's less the case for different reasons that we don't have them to go there. Let's the case in, in, in Western Europe, for instance, or even the US. But yeah, so, and I don't know, for some reason, you know, Frankfurt Hahn, Hainan Airline, maybe uh, it was yeah, just a destiny. Yeah. <laughs> Let's stay on that side of the world. Qantas uh, just announced, finally announced, so now it's a reality, the world longest direct flight. They're going to fly uh, from Perth to London uh, with oh. a Dreamliner, a Dash 9. It's uh, almost 15,500 kilometers 
kilometers long, uh, 17 hours. And they say, they haven't said in that announcement, but Qantas is studying a direct Sydney to London, which will take 20 hours. Uh, I hope they also come up with a special kind of beer for that. Yeah, you're going to need it. That 20 <laughs> hours in a... In a oh. I mean, when in the mid-2000s, Actually, maybe even before that, when Singapore Airlines was doing their A340-500 ultra-long-haul yeah. services, they configured York, that yeah. plane in a very special way so that it wasn't crazy cramped. In fact, I think there was an all-business-class version as well. But I think you would have to specially configure that airplane, not just for the efficiency of being able to get from Perth to or, or Sydney to London, but also just for the health, not even the comfort, the health of people who have to sit down for 20 hours. It's not good for anybody. So no 24-inch uh, semi-standing seats yeah, for that, no, I hope. Because, I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not sure I even want to try these very no, ultra-long uh, no. flights. I want, maybe once in my life to have said, you know, I was looking at maybe uh, some of the listeners remember last year doing the Lima-Dubai, which was the world longest. Um, I, I, I don't know if I really wanted to... Maybe if I were 25, but I'm not no, okay. Or, or of course, if I can find a way to get it, maybe in business first. But even it's super long. I've done yeah. recently a 15 hours flight, remember, for sale to New York. And that was, you sleep and you're like, oh, I still have 10 hours in front of me. Yeah, I mean, yeah exactly. Forget <laughs> it. ANA also is uh, announcing its longest ever route. It's not as long, but for those who are interested, uh, they do Tokyo to Mexico City. Now is uh, also a Dreamliner, a Dash 8, that's a little bit more than 11,000 kilometers. You know what? There was interesting on the back of that there was an interesting debate on airliners.net which there often are but uh about somebody initially suggested what a strange route from tokyo to mexico but actually when you look at it there is a lot of capacity between mm-hmm. that reach so of japan korea and northeastern china to mexico because i mean mexico is not a small country but if you go to shanghai and you sit there when you take a flight back to london they're often at the same time as the Aeromexico Shanghai Tijuana flight, which I think is my favorite city pairing. <laughs> Shanghai Tijuana. I don't think you can get much more contrast than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think Aeromexico already flies five times a week to Tokyo, so there is There's def- demand, demand and capacity uh, on. The, you there know, must be capacity. It is. I'm sure it is not throwing that out there just to throw it out. No, there. no. Talking about uh, long shows, our show today will be slightly longer, possibly because uh, the end of Narita, which is uh, a bit long. Plus, it's our 50th episode. Come on, guys. Let's go over an hour. So, Marcus Volter came forward and said that he was the one who said that our previous intro to the show was cheesy. Thank you, Marcus, for being so honest. He also kept honest by saying, uh, and it's not a dig, uh, we had this argument back and forth with him like a few times that I edit, because I edit this show myself, that I edit it too tightly. I will admit that I possibly edit it a bit uh, tightly. The the one thing I want first to defend ourselves is that Alex and I are very fast-paced. The way we actually are doing the show, the end result you're listening is actually a very big reflection of what we actually already are. The fact that we switch topics very fast without having a pause, it's the way we do it. Yeah. Uh, I have the the original recordings, guys. I can show them to you. We are super fast. It's true that sometimes, especially myself, I tend to ramble a bit and I, I and I cut a little bit the, the rambling because it's not always interesting to hear over and over the same sentence maybe above one of the topics I've done. So, and it's true that a few times in the episode it might sound natural. 
anyway, what I want to tell you is, guys, please do not hesitate to send us that kind of feedback. If you think that I edit a bit too tight and I'll try to pay attention, I'm always happy to hear about that kind of stuff. I understand that some people want to have maybe a more slower pace, but that, again, is a bit a bit us. But, I mean, please tell me, and I'll try to, you know, cater for all kind of audiences. It's true that my uh, philosophy, basically, is very... Uh, these action movies in Hollywood, you know, we, we start the show and we get right into the subject. There's no introduction. It's fast, 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 fast. Not for everyone, probably, but please let me know, and I'll try to make a balance. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we had a review, another one, uh, Steve, I guess his name is Steve because it's Steve followed by a few numbers on uh, iTunes, another five stars. Thank you guys, Thank really. You I guys. mean, we are overwhelmed. The, this podcast strikes a perfect balance of professionalism and passion, a must for the aviation enthusiast. Long may Paul and Alex keep it up. Yeah, we're trying. Uh, we really are. <laughs> but you guys, you don't realize it's not, we're not asking reviews to like fake some kind of algorithm or whatever because it doesn't really change how easy or not easy it is to find our show on iTunes and other platforms. It's really that we love to have feedback to know, okay, are we going in the right, right. direction? Yeah, of course, thank you for taking the time. Steve, thanks a lot. Uh, since I'm still on this, and then I'm going to move on back to airplanes and airports, uh, I've introduced chapters in uh, the podcast. It's something that only a few apps work, so I'm going to give you a, a few. I've tested them all, actually. <laughs> My God. <laughs> on iOS, Overcast, Downcast, Instacast, Podcast, iCatcher, RSS Radio, wow. and to a certain extent, Pocketcast, do uh, chapters. What are chapters? Is basically now if you go to show notes, you'll find which topic starts at which minute. And on these apps, you can actually directly jump between topics. So if you don't want to hear us uh, talking about podcast chapters, for instance, you can just actually ditch that and go to the next chapter. Uh, on Android, only one I think uh, app does it. It's called Antenna Pod. If you guys, if you know about any others, we're not Android people here on this show. Please uh, let us know. And also, we are now listed on uh, TuneIn and Acast, which are two very popular platforms that I forgot to list us in, to be frankly honest. So if you guys are using those, you can simply search for layovers. And anyway, let us know if, if there's ways to listen to us you wish you had and you don't have besides podcasting, SoundCloud, etc. Let us know. I'm working on getting us on Spotify. It's a bit uh, hard because they don't accept submission, but I know some ways. It should be there soon, hopefully. But please, again, feedback, feedback, feedback. We'd love to hear about that. So since we are in these exchanges on Twitter, because that exchange with Marcus happened on Twitter, uh, this exchange between Aer Lingus and Norwegian Air was pretty funny. <laughs> it happened in January. So it was, you know, it's two airlines, it's stupid, but two airlines talking about their low fares. So Norwegian would say, yeah, we have non-stop routes that go from Dublin to the US from 69 euros. And of course, Aer Lingus answers, no free bag, no free seat assignment, no free meal, no pre-clearance. Cheers, you grand, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then free advertising. So that's Norwegian answering. Free advertising from Erlingus for Norwegian low cost flights. That's grand thanks, guys, because they actually are looking at where Erlingus arrived, which is Stewart International Airport. And they put that in Google Maps and they say, how long does that take to Times Square? And of course, uh, Google Maps answers can't find a way there. Yeah, so 60 far. miles away. <laughs> 60 miles uh, away. This is a lovely, good natured little yeah, it's good back and forth between these two guys who. I think in the big scheme of things, they're probably on each other's side. And yes, they're competing across the Atlantic, but 
neither of them are. Well, I suppose Aer Lingus is now part of IAG, so they've got some big muscle yeah. behind them. You know, it's actually very, I mean, not very strange, because since they switched alliance, uh, I was on a flight back from Athens with BA yesterday, actually, and uh, we had like a more than an hour delay. There was this uh, lady sit next to me, and this, she said, uh, I need to get to Dublin. And of course, I'm using Aer Lingus because Aer Lingus is part of One World. But the thing is, of course, in, in Ethro, Erlingus is still in the Star Alliance terminal. So that's actually uh, why she was concerned that she would actually miss her flight. She had like 40 minutes. I'm not sure. Uh, that's There's tight. Some, if it's, you know, one world, I hope that BA would transport her airside from, you know, one terminal to the other. And she didn't have to do it true. herself, go through immigration. But anyway, she might have to go through immigration because there's no controls at in Dublin because you're already in the UK. We're in uh, this free thing, right? Yeah. Free. yeah you're, you're not in the UK, but you... Do you, I can't remember if you have to go through immigration when you come from the UK. I haven't been to Dublin in a while. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I think there's no... That's one of the things with Brexit, right? Is will there be like... Border between Northern Ireland border. and the Republic of yeah. Ireland. Yeah. Uh, since we're Norwegian, they've announced their uh, routes uh, from Europe using the 737 MAX 8. It will be Belfast, Cork, Dublin, Shannon. And in the US, it will be Hartford, Newburgh, Stewart... Providence, they really are doing a low-cost game. They are going to small airports, even in the U.S. I've never been to Hartford, Newburgh, Stewart, and uh, Providence. I've been to Providence, uh, but I haven't been to those other places. I, I mean, you're in loosely the right area to get to the places that they <laughs> advertise that they're serving. I mean, but Ryanair's been doing this for 25 years. They've been saying, oh, yeah, we technically fly to Stockholm, and it's still an hour and a 45-minute coach well. into the city, you know? <laughs> I remember back in the days, I don't know if it's the case anymore, so EasyJet is a different company in Switzerland. They have two EasyJet. There's an EasyJet incorporated in the UK and another EasyJet incorporated in Switzerland. And you don't see it as a customer, but you might actually use one of, of either. Mm. And back then when I was living in Switzerland, if you wanted to go to Barcelona, I think because of some regulations in, uh, or maybe agreement with the Spanish authorities, EasyJet could only sell you a cheap ticket if it was part of a package, meaning with accommodation. So what they would do, they would sell you that. the ticket to Barcelona, but not the big airport, another random airport, plus a fantastic accommodation in a tent next to the airport, which was like two euros. So basically, that was a way to go around. The You're kidding. <laughs> That's hilarious. What a good idea. Was, yeah, exactly. Right. With Norwegian, we went from Europe to the US. Let's go to the US. The article that a lot of people are talking about, this interview of uh, Munoz, the CEO of uh, United. He talks about a lot, a lot of stuff in that article. Uh, I'm going to just go from the anecdote. Apparently, when he arrived at United, as at the helm of United, he realized that uh, there was free coffee, but the cups were not free and there were no more cups because of cost cutting. So people had to bring their own cup. And he said, yeah, in a majestic display of benevolence, he reintroduced the cups. But besides that, what are we talking about here? <laughs> this is a very long interview where he covers a lot of ground and he doesn't mince his words, but he, obviously it always comes back to... The ME3. Uh -huh. And actually, you know, we've covered this in the last couple of episodes. This is a conversation that has come roaring back to life since the change in uh, administration in the United States. You know, he did not mince his words. He said that those airlines aren't airlines. They're international branding vehicles for their countries, which I think was meant to sound a lot harsher than it actually did because... So are British Airways and so is American Airlines, if you think about it. You know, they are named Absolutely. after the countries they represent. And neither of those do a particularly good job of representing their countries. But 
Uh, I think what he was trying to say was, as a result, they get subsidized by their governments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we've picked this scab right open, and I don't think we're going to hear anything but this in the headlines of all of the aviation journals for quite a long time. Yeah, he even said, uh, no one can say the word Qatar. That was like, that was a bit stupid, honestly. No, no. The, the word that came up the most, and you can feel that it plays to the Trump administration, is that term jobs. You know, we're defending jobs, US-based jobs. And he takes the example of that route that now Emirates flight from Athens to Newark and says, if Emirates flies there, it means that we won't do that route anymore. Thus, we will lose jobs. And we're here to defend jobs. Well, yeah, of course, uh, countering will go over the smaller airlines in a minute. My first counter is, and I've said that, like, I think it was two years ago, because this has been, we could have renamed our show the ME3 versus, you know, (laughs) the rest of the world. Basically, what he's criticizing there is the fifth freedom route that Emirates is doing. Emirates is also doing from Europe, from MXP, from Milan to uh, GFK this time. But I just looked it up very quickly. United offers Hong Kong to Seoul, Seoul to Narita, Singapore to Hong Kong. What are those? Are they not also competing with whoever carrier is there and could have taken notes? United, yeah. if I go to, and I'm not even mentioning, you know, the Guams and the places that are heavily US centric. Yeah. I'm talking about really. So basically everything that was continental Micronesia before United bought continental. It's, it's nonsense. And it's, you know, it's this open skies criticism when it's convenient for the major US carriers. And I think it is important. And I think you were, you were alluding to this just a moment ago that we say, the major U.S. carriers, because it's not all U.S. carriers that are being so petulant about this. Just before we go there, Delta, Manila to Narita, Shanghai to Narita, Singapore to Narita, Taipei to Narita, Narita to Bangkok, Narita to Hong Kong, Narita to Saipan. I mean, we're talking here about the same basically system that they apply on one side of the U.S., but don't want to see applied on the other side. So that's my criticism. You're right. That was the other article on ATW Online. We talked about the smaller aircraft. Smaller. I mean, they, if you add them up, they actually make a lot of jobs. They're actually pretty big. But it was JetBlue, Alaska, Atlas. Uh, and they said, you know, we're fine with open skies, actually. And it's good for competition. And we, the JetBlue president and CEO, Robin Hayes, said... We very much take a different view. Well, that's the least you could say, because they really are defending open skies. FedEx is also defending, because FedEx actually relies as well on Dubai for a lot of their operations. And they say, if we don't have open skies anymore, if we start using these basically partnership agreements and allow us to get access to other parts of the world, we will lose and we will lose jobs. So like you said... This is not a one-way street here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, JetBlue have got that relationship with Emirates that they've said has been a huge success for them, that's fed in and out of their network. And they get it. They understand it. They see how to leverage these relationships and these income, because it's almost, well, it's probably a healthy mix of leisure and business travelers, but they see it as an opportunity and not as a threat. Fair enough. I mean, JetBlue are a domestic carrier, so they are only going to benefit from from traffic coming in. But we've been over this. The U.S. government has ruled on it. Every department of the U.S. government has ruled on it. It's it's getting a little bit ridiculous. However, I still think that the current administration might do something about this. So I do agree. I do agree. They will be, we will hear about that. It's I, popcorn I, I totally time, I think. <laughs> I thought, yeah, maybe. I hope they offer popcorn on, on That'd be Delta. Good idea, huh? <laughs> the smell would be amazing. <laughs> uh, since we're there, very quick note because we don't want to do politics. There's a new travel ban, an executive order that was just signed, I think, today or yesterday. yesterday this yeah. time, 
politics aside, this time the thing that won't be happening is chaos. Why? Because it's a lead time. It will only be in place in about 10 days, I think. The rules seem to be a bit clearer. There's only six and not seven countries. But still, will this go to court? Probably. The administration also said that it might include, at the end, 12 more countries that could actually be under that executive order that are being uh, scrutinized right now. We don't know. But just to say that this type of rules we've seen might happen again. We might not see the chaos because now airlines and people will probably know about it before. But it's yeah. uh, we haven't heard the, the end of this and, either. And thanks to those of you that got in touch with your U.S. immigration stories after the last time we talked about this. Oh, yeah. And please do let us know if you have noticed anything different, uh, if things change between this week and next week when the new ban goes into effect, if you're getting extra scrutiny of your passport stamps, or if you're getting any questions, just out of interest. I'm fascinated to see how this changes on the ground in the airports that you're all flying through. Yeah, one of the stories was, I think, LAX. One of our listeners told us that it took like at least 10 times longer than usual. The lines were longer because more questions were being, yeah. were being asked. The person is American, so American passport. It was uh, still longer. I think he was flying from Asia or something. I have to mention the new executive order this time specifically says that if you're a green color holder or if your visa has already been approved, you're fine. So we're only talking about new visa demands, et cetera, et cetera. And this is a 90-day ban. There's been also, Skift has mentioned that apparently some green card holders are seeing their global entry status revoked, additional scrutiny. I don't know, again, how big that is, how many people were, but there must be because people talk about it. Of course, you get, if you are global entry and if you are being revoked, you will get a notification from the government. So it's not as if you'll yeah, arrive at the airport, hope. it will be. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the other thing that I've heard that has changed is now because of a, a different executive order, which this time is about documented immigrants in the US, they are, and that's very new for the US, because many times we said here that we are almost jealous of the way you fly domestic in the US, where besides security, there's no control, etc. Now, apparently, there has been control on domestic flights when you land when you have authorities asking you for your papers to make sure that you actually have an identification with you. Amazing. So that's very, very, very new, right? That's, that's very that never new. Happened. And I think there's, it's in the legal gray area as well, whether Absolutely. or not you have to, to actually give that information to somebody. But yeah, please let us know what experiences you have just so we can you know let everybody else know what's happening and what to expect. And you know if you've got questions about it, let us know and we'll see if we can find the answer. Cory Doctorov just wrote uh, this morning uh, an article about the new TSA rules. Apparently, the pat-downs will be more invasive than they ever were. Uh, the title, I will just read it out loud. TSA's new pat-downs are so invasive, airports are preemptively warning cops to expect sexual assault claims. Jeez. I don't know what... Yeah, geez, exactly. Apparently, the, the secondary screening, you know, if you, they ask you to step uh, off the line and do a, a second screening could actually be more invasive than it was up to now. So well, I, I just said that security was not always a concern, but this is a big concern. I mean, again, we'll see what happens. And finally, to our American friends that want to travel to Europe, there was a news that made the rounds oh, for like yeah, a week. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. The EU, the EU travel ban. Uh, apparently, Americans would be precluded to come to Europe without visa. This is not true, guys. It's a vote. 
that was taken, of course, in the European Parliament, but it's non-binding. So as in, for the moment, it, nothing has changed. The story even begins way before that whole new administration thing. Why? Because in the US, if you come from specific countries in Eastern Europe, which are part of the EU, you still need to have a visa. And in retaliation, the European Parliament says, well, as long as you don't give free visa access for the entire population of the European Union, we would like to retaliate. But again, this is non-binding. So don't worry, guys, you're not going to be precluded to come to Europe tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. And then when, if and when it does become law, I'm sure we're going to talk about it. Uh, the other thing that I don't know if there's a ban off is uh, mice. Um, there was a mouth <laughs> in the plane. Uh, I think it was, a, was it BA? It was think, BA right? to San Francisco. The mouse they were didn't on the have ground. visa. The mouse didn't have his visa and they he wouldn't give his social media passwords. So he was not, <laughs> not allowed to fly. Um, so this was a plane at Heathrow that was about to fly to San Francisco when they spotted a mouse and the plane cannot take off with undocumented, you know, livestock, uh, if you, oh if you will, on it. So they could not, they had to actually swap out the airplane. There was a four hour delay uh, <laughs> for these poor know. people. <laughs> yeah, so it, um <laughs> Poor British Airways. Yeah, they just can't catch a break at the moment. I, I like it. British Airways said, we know almost everyone wants to fly with us to San Francisco. But on this occasion, there was one very small customer who we had to send back to the gate. Everyone with two legs is now on their way to California. And we're sorry for the delay. So well, well played, British Airways. It's one of those things. Well, They're big well things. Played. They're always out in the open. They could have come from anywhere. So they had to do what they had to do. Now, on a slightly more serious note, there was this also story that made the round where um, Pakistan airline admitted uh, flying uh, more passengers than they should have in our, in our aircraft. I don't even remember the aircraft it was. So basically what they said, they had to refuse passengers uh, at check-in because they were overbooked. For some reason, these passengers insisted and some ground staff wrote manually boarding passes for these guys. They were admitted in the plane and then the plane, you know, took off. And then the captain, that's what he says, realized that, oops, we have more passengers than we should have had. Uh, first of all, where did they sit? Like on jump seats or something? They did. <laughs> they stood. They stood in the <laughs> aisles. Seven passengers stood in the aisles. What? I mean, have you ever tried to stand when an airplane is taking off or when it's actually landing? It's not, I mean, it's not easy. No, it's it's unbelievable. And the fact that this has happened is just staggering to me. And it's not like somebody slipped on board. It's seven people. And like you said, they were written these sort of handwritten boarding passes. Just unbelievable. And of course, that means that also for security reasons, not only, you know, evacuation is only made for, you know, the number of passengers the airplane is supposed to have, but also they wouldn't have access to oxygen, for instance, because of course they don't have a seat. And uh, not to mention all the whatever could have happened when there's turbulences on takeoff or something. Yeah, exactly. I, had a fr I have a friend of mine, we'll invite him someday because I think I already mentioned that in previous episodes. He, he works for the United Nations and he has these stories of people standing in planes in some obscure route between two African countries, for instance. And they're amazing stories. So we'll invite him one day, but I don't, I don't understand how they would actually say, oh, we didn't realize there were more passengers before we closed the door and we just took off. No, there were passengers standing, but that's fine, right? Or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe it's the captain who wants to avoid a fine or something. But It's extraordinary. We just talked about mice. We talked about extra passengers. Now let's talk about mule. Air mule. So air mule is this new thing. It's a startup that says, okay, Alex, you have extra room in your luggage. You can be paid 
to transport something on behalf of someone else. Yeah, of course. I already see Alex's face on the other side of the screen say, what the hell? No way. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so I, my... re I, I read about this when you sent me the link and I get it. So like if you have allowance for two carry-on bags and you're only using one, they will connect you with a TSA certified shipper to carry something on their behalf. And if you strip aside the security concerns and all of that, I actually think it's quite a good idea. But then you bring on the security stuff and they 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 had this whole section on their site where they talk about how everything's validated and verified and TSA approved and they TSA screens it and blah, blah, blah. Um, there's just something that makes me slightly uncomfortable about this. Yeah, exactly. I was, I think... Uh, a year and a half ago, I was doing a, do some work with a, one of the Korean agencies for startups, so South Korea. And there was this startup that pitched a similar idea. It was international. And I said, what about security? And of course, they hadn't even thought about it. They said, I don't want to carry something. I don't know what's in it, right? So this, at least, they are thinking about this old TSA certified, etc. They make, they really emphasize a lot this, you know, the safety concerns. I still wouldn't feel comfortable. I mean, you can win money. They say you can win up to $300 by, so basically you could actually offset the price of your ticket. Maybe it will take off. I don't know. I just don't see myself doing it. No, I don't think so either. It probably only works domestic because as soon as you arrive in any other international yeah, airport you got and say, customs and all that to deal with. Have you done your own luggage? Yeah. No. Well, this was given by TSA certified yeah. personnel. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, TripIt has announced a new features called Go Now. So now when... Um, a lot of now in my sentence here. So basically, <laughs> you can simply activate this feature. I think it only works in the US for domestic flights for the moment. And you say it basically warns you when you're seated in your couch or doing a podcast like we do, like, hey, it's time to go to the airport. Uh, and you can calculates the route, how long it would take according to your preferences, whether it's a car or uh, public transport, for instance. Why not? Yeah, it's not a bad idea. I think uh, Google Calendar is quite good at doing that, saying it's going to take you, you know, your flight or your appointment is at this time and you, it will, they use Google Maps API to figure out how long it's going to take you to get from where you are to the location of the meeting. And then they, they ping you and say, it's time, you should probably think about leaving now. It's a good idea, but I don't think we're the market for that because uh, we, we tend to get to the airport <laughs> pretty early. Mathieu Guillaume-Duluc told me that I forgot to mention in all the apps I've mentioned Kayak. So Kayak also has a feature for trips. So simply if you have Kayak on your iPhone, or I've not checked on Android, you have indeed a feature where you can simply forward your booking and it will, unless you've actually booked with Kayak, and that will be automatic. Well, they will actually also have like gate announcements and stuff. It's free. So it's one of the free options. Works uh, pretty well. I had some sync issues in the past and it doesn't read hotel bookings if you like that, but it's a good option. I kept mentioning in the very early shows uh, an app called Flying From. This has now disappeared. They don't do it anymore. They ran out of funding. They had found some angel that gave him extra runway to be able to continue but uh, it, it stopped working for the few past months sadly it was pretty nice and the one that i forgot to mention but everybody because i have a few guys who told me on, on twitter hey you haven't talked about it. it's called app in the air i use it as well they they're pretty good they also do like they can read your email if you're on imap uh you can add car rentals hotel bookings in it uh and they have nice stats uh so if you want to share your stats how many times you've flown data craft etc so app in the 
year is one you could also also check. And finally, um, if you want to have this type of notifications on your desktop, there's a new app on Mac that's called Today Flights. And it goes oh. into the notification center and you can have these types of, uh, it's a widget basically, that will monitor a flight and tell you they departed, when they fly, when they land, etc. So why not if you don't want to have that on your phone? Last one, uh, fly SMS. Not too bad, actually. You know, when you land in a destination, what's the first thing you do? You Maybe you tell your wife, I've arrived. Yeah, or, I do. That's exactly the first thing I do. So this is an automated way of doing that, especially for people who don't have roaming access or something. It will track the flight for you, and you can create a rule that says when the flight has landed, automatically send a text to X person to say, hey, I've landed, I'm fine, I'll be in touch soon when I get on Wi-Fi or something. I think you can customize the text. Yeah, that's cool. Why not? Yeah, honestly, I don't think it's not too bad. Yeah, I mean, that's a nice idea. I like it. Uh, since from that, I've done a few flights myself. I went to uh, Geneva and Athens. I'm not going to go too long on them, both with BA. I should be, I will know by <laughs> tonight if I'm gold. I think I've reached gold finally. Uh, nice. The trip case, I sent you this. Oh, trip yeah, case this is just insane. Amazing. <laughs> My flight was leaving from Athens to London at 6.30 p.m. I received no less than nine times in the end, nine notifications from Tripcase, nine emails as well, because I also have the email notification activated to tell me, your flight will now depart original time 6.30, new time 6.30. And he kept saying oh, that. This geez. is just insane. And it actually didn't pick up that the flight was late, only tripits so that the plane actually was not scheduled in the end at 6.30, but at 7.15. But anyway, I wanted to ask you something because, you know, I'm a BA novice. I've never flown BA as much as you probably have. And I've realized that when you're at the gate, you know, sometimes they do this, uh, many airlines do that. They say, oh, we have a full flight. If anybody wants to, you know, bring their carry-on, we'll yes. put in the hole for free which, by the way, is a very good way to avoid paying surcharges uh, for you just you assume it might be full and you just give it, so then you don't have to pay for it. The thing is, BA, contrary and other airlines, I've seen many other airlines just take your luggage, you put the little tag on it, and yeah. that's it. BA will make you sit in front of everyone. So basically, you will have been pre-boarded by the simple fact that you were nice enough to give your bag. Yes, this happened, uh, I saw it on my flight to somewhere recently, Dusseldorf. You got pre-boarding if you gave your bag, and actually they were paying people to not go on this flight as well. Uh, they were paying them quite a lot of money to take the next flight, which is about four hours later. But yes, if you volunteer to put your carry-on in the hold, you usually get uh, priority boarding, no matter where you're sitting. That's nice, actually. It's a nice way. So not only you avoid surcharges, but you get priority boarding. So you get basically almost like better than a gold card or whatever by just being nice and giving yeah. your carry-on. <laughs> it's a, almost a strategy you could actually do, right? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> by the way, no! That was what you said when I sent you this. There's a big, fat advertising of the blue smart smart carry-on in smart in brackets carry-on at uh, the uh, BA Galleries uh, Lounge South at uh, Heathrow. I, I saw that and I thought about you. Nobody was paying attention. That's a bit sad. And the, the screens were not working, but there were two actual blue smart. I don't know if they're actual because they were so much solidly anchored that I couldn't even like try to take them away. I didn't want to steal them. I just want to see how light they well, were. Well, that's what I was going to say, that it's silly that you couldn't see how light it was because it's got all of that stuff in it. But the fact that there are in-airport displays now, I think says something about the success that they're having, surely. The thing I will say is, okay, I'm not a my base of observation is not scientific. I haven't seen, or seemingly I haven't seen a lot of people having those 
when I fly. I don't know if people. I would recognize it if I. Yeah, maybe maybe that's it. They're they're pretty because they're black at the end of the day, so you don't. And yeah. I don't really pay attention. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. know if I would recognize one, but again, we've asked this many many times. If any of you out there have a smart suitcase, let us know. We won't make fun of you. I promise. <laughs> Uh, uh, by the way, Trippett also said that I was flying from not Athens uh, in Greece to London, but from Athens, Georgia, A H N to I don't know why. I mean, sorry, guys, Tripcase, you should slightly tune your your software. Oh yeah, and you know what? For once, for once, a human beat all these apps because as soon as I entered that gallery's lounge, the lady said, "Your gate will be A 6 the screens weren't showing it. Tripping wasn't showing it. Nothing was showing it. And, you know, I like also to be early at the gate. So usually I leave before it, the announcement because I don't want to have too many people. Yes. I like to be kind of early as well and maybe first in the plane to have all the room I need in, for my carry-on. And I said, okay, I will trust her. She said A6. I arrive, it says gate closed. And then suddenly it says fly to Athens. Trippet only reacted like five minutes later. The board in the airport reacted two minutes later. So yeah, humans are still better than computers. Right. <laughs> uh -huh. In Greece, though, I don't know if it's a sign of the crisis, but uh, what I didn't know is that the BA lounge closed. Uh, there's no more BA lounge in Athens airport. Really? And they say you should go to the Aristotle Onassis uh, lounge, which was closed <laughs> and then i had to go to the swiss port lounge which basically has now a big fat sign with like 125 airlines in front of it so basically when you enter it's so packed uh. i don't know if it's a sign of the crisis i hope not maybe it's just uh, you know the winter period and they are refurbishing the other lounge ba lounge is gone and thankfully so because i could send you pictures the chairs were ripped it was one of the worst ba lounge i've ever seen i think the ceo of ba was really sound to say you know guys let's Stop this. It's not used to continue having a lounge in uh, in Athens. And I flew uh, 767, and that was really nice. I really enjoyed that. I like to that, come back. too. Yeah. I'm, 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 There's a different feeling about it. Relaxed, isn't it? It's, it's, yes. The service is, is good. They give you full... I don't know if you had it, but um, last time I flew, which was to Istanbul, I think, the service was just really good. The food was really good. Everyone was relaxed. It, that had a sort of old-timey feel to it. It was I loved yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. 19 years old was a bit... It's nice. I don't know. And you feel like you're almost flying long haul. Yes. Because, it's, of course, it's a wide body of sorts. So it was nice. Uh, C700, C300 MK2. These are not new uh, aircraft. These are the cameras that were used along a GoPro to create an amazing video by Swiss... And the Patrouille Suisse. Oh, isn't that cool? Uh, I over, love that uh, they uh, do these. Has your son seen it? Yes, of course. <laughs> and he loved <laughs> he's them. Seen, uh, he's seen this one. His favorite was the one with the A330. But this is just yeah. as spectacular. I love that they do these. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a CS-100, the, the Bombardier one, with the Patrouille Suisse, which is the displays of uh, Switzerland for uh, fighter jets over St. Moritz for the World Ski Championship. So you have these amazing views of... All these aircrafts doing like some kind of demonstrations above the Alps. It's, it's, it's stunning. So let's go back to Japan. When you enter Japan, uh, you have to take uh, your fingerprints and they take a picture of you, like a lot of countries do. Apparently, they will finally introduce facial recognition, so actual gates. 
They are doing that as well in Paris. I've flown recently to Paris. Paris has a system for French passport holders only called Paraf. It's a nightmare. It doesn't really <laughs> work well. You have to, apparently you have to pre-register and the thing works half the time. They are now also putting e-gates. I think we're going to see them all around the world now. But these are only for immigration. KLM and Schiphol are introducing facial recognition software and gates for boarding. Putting your passport and probably, I guess, your phone with your barcode will recognize your face and allow you to get through boarding. Does no it more human interactions, or does it matches your face probably, or does it even just log your face? I assume that's my assumption that it matches the same face that they have in the record for immigration when you pass passport control with the one that it and or simply the you know the biometric recognition you put your passport which is already if you're it's biometric and will match the face of the passport. It's a trial, three months in Schiphol. I don't know for which flights. Uh, so if any one of you guys is flying to Amsterdam or lives in Amsterdam, and we'll go through that. Let us know how it works. We're really interested. Yes. Because I don't know what's a benefit, though, because do they have to make sure that an actual person... That's what I was asking. Like, I'd be interested to know what the benefit is. Perhaps I'm missing something. Maybe I am, too. Air France KLM uh, has seen its profits rise, but they're still cutting costs. And uh, one of the ways to cut costs always, of course, for all those traditional airlines is to introduce a, a low-cost version of their airlines. We've seen that all over and over again. But France, so Air France, has always had like massive problems. Every, every time they tried it, they had problems. So they have now two. One is called Hop, and the other one is called Transavia. And Transavia, when they tried to expand Transavia's routes... It's the last time they had used strikes. They had even, like, you remember, the shirt of the CEO was ripped oh, yeah, in the demonstration. And they backed off. So now the new plan is for the new CEO, Frank Turner, because Juniak has taken the place of our friend uh, Tony Tyler. Uh, the new plan is to introduce a yet another low-cost airline, uh, which codename currently is called Boost. What they will do, in a, and I guess this is the old trade-off with the unions, hire the pilots from Air France, but the crew will not be from Air France. So I, I'm guessing the, in the power struggle, they're thinking, okay, the pilots have lots of uh, damage potential with our strikes, so let's make them happy and the rest not. And that's their new low-cost structure, the th Horizon 2019-2020. I, I don't know what... It's, it's, it seems very complicated for Air France. It does seem complicated. They're big fans of this, aren't they? They're trying to <laughs> you know, overcomplicate things ever so slightly. I don't know. I, it, it seems when others are consolidating, they're just sort of fracturing bits of the company off and trying to make something, and it's really not going to work. And this time, it will be a mix of long-haul and short-haul low-cost. When you think about it, at least Lufthansa with Eurowings as one single entity, these, it seems to have, because there's also like a Transavia, there's two Transavia, one that belongs to Air France and the other that belongs to KLM with different rules. So you see, it's like, it's really, it seems very overly complicated. Yeah. I mean, good luck to them. I hope it works. Air France was the airline I was commuting with when I was living in Japan. So this is why I have, I cannot resist by having fond memories of Air France because every time I would step into uh, the 777 that would uh, fly me back to Europe, I was already in Europe. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I was yeah. No, Japanese tarmac and I was getting, I was already there. Right? And, it, it, and it, it was, it, it's an interesting flight, by the way, because it's the last flight to depart from Narita Airport and it's the first flight to land in Paris. Ah. The thing is, because it would land too early and there's also nighttime restrictions in um, Narita, 
it was a longer flight than the others. They had to fly not as fast as their daylight flights because they would otherwise arrive too early. And it happened to me once. I arrived at uh, the, the flight. We usually land around 4.30 a.m. in Paris. And once, probably because of winds, we landed at 4. You know, you go out of the airplane with a jet bridge and then we had to wait in some kind of small room for like half an hour what? because there was no staff. There was no staff. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there was no one. But anyway, it was still, it was a nice experience. And Charles de Gaulle is the number one destination from Narita, strangely enough. Huh. London comes only fifth or sixth. Uh, Frankfurt is second, uh, I think. So you see, it's a very popular route, the one I was taking. And Narita, for me, is a special place in my heart because, of course, it's now it's been, oh, wow, almost 10 years I've lived there. It was the, also kind of the beginning of my, not my love for flying, obviously, but when I started flying a lot. And uh, so Narita is an airport that is not up to Incheon, Singapore, as in it's not this big hub. Right. I go why in a minute. And I'm sorry, guys, it could take a bit longer than it usually takes to talk about our airports. When you land in Narita, if you look out the window, you will maybe see a few things that are very odd about that airport. First thing, you might see there's a farm in the middle of the airport. There's actually more than one farm, so it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. If you look around the airport, where the fences would be, if you want, on every traditional airport, there's a wall. There's even like security. There's the army there actually surveilling the airport. This airport has always been in a state of high security alert, which of course a lot of people will just say, oh, it's post 9-11. Well, no, 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 no. It's actually dates dates back a long time. So for a long time, Haneda was the only airport. Then, you know, the post-war boom in Japan made the country succeed. They needed another airport, especially for international flights. The government was trying to find places. They found a place which is pretty far from Tokyo, but Tokyo is such a big city, which is currently uh, where Narita Airport is. 40% of the land was owned by the emperor, basically. So that part was easy. They would just give it to the government to create the airport. The rest was owned by farmers. The problem is the government was not very smart. They didn't really do like, you know, they didn't go and talk to these farmers. They didn't even inform the local authorities. They just started to try to buy these lands. And the farmers were like, no way. We don't want an airport here. So they resisted. They unionized, they make an association, and they resisted. But they resisted super, super harshly. The original plan for Narita was to have four runways, full runways, wow. and three to four terminals. Currently, just that you know, we have one and a half runway and two and a half terminals. Why? So when they were trying to build the first runway... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm smiling, but this is not the image a lot of people have of Japan. They think of, they think of this sometimes wrongly about this very quiet country, very respectful yeah. and polite. There were like a lot of riots where people were basically making impossible the lives of, of building workers to finish the airport, the first terminal and the control tower. They had to have almost like a delay of eight years to finish the only runway they had back then. At the end of the runway, there's one of these farms that built, and I'm not kidding, it built a tower there. So it would mean that for a long time, airplanes couldn't land coming from that side of the runway because it was a tower that made it unsafe for airplanes to land. So they only had the possibility to land one way, and the government couldn't do anything about it. There was a tower that belonged, to the, the, the land belonged to this farmer. The farmer said, I don't want to have an airport next to me, built a tower. When they tried to open the control tower, rioters rammed the entrance of the airport with trucks in fire. They went to the sewage pipe 
entered the control tower and destroyed it. No way. Uh, <laughs> they completely rammed it, completely destroyed it. When Narita Airport tried to open, and that we're talking now more than 30 years ago, they had, I think, 16,000 policemen the day of the opening of the airport. There were more than 6,000 protesters. They fought with Molotov cocktails. They tried to set Jeez. fire to the trains, <laughs> stuff like that, because they knew they would have a hard time actually entering Narita Airport. They went into other tower controls in Japan and shut them down. So they actually shut the entire Japanese air traffic for more than a day because they were unhappy about the fact that... Nar- now, I'm not kidding. This is really something completely, completely, completely crazy. Is- now, <laughs> we're talking here, basically, so the airport was supposed to open you know, in the 70s. So basically, at the end of the 70s, it was open. Yeah, they, they also use pachinko. You know the pachinko? Yeah, yeah of course. Pachinko they, balls, you know, yeah. they, use, they use pachinko balls to attack the police <laughs> to try to force their way into the airport that was being built. We're really talking about a lot of aggression. This is where it comes, all these security concerns. It has never has been about international terrorism. It was really the local farmers were so unhappy, mixed in the 70s with probably the, the, the radical left, if you if you wish, that was very active in Japan that was saying, oh, this airport is made for Americans. So all this kind of conveyed together and they made these huge attacks on the airport. The second runway <laughs> is only half finished. Why? If you look at... Guys, just go on Google Maps, uh, put the satellite view, and you'll see that there is a farm where... Part of the runway should be. So there actually are eight farmers that still live on the land of the airport. What does that mean? It means that these guys live secluded just where the planes are landing. They are not okay to sell their lands. And the government understood that uh, with all these violence, it was better not to even try anymore and not even try to use eminent domain. So when you land, you probably will see a farm that is just on the runway. There's a shrine, a little shrine that is at just at the end of the runway. This is land that doesn't belong to the airport. That's the reason why the, the second runway is so short and it cannot accommodate 380s and 747s. On the taxiway back from that, again, if you look on Google Maps, you'll see the taxiway is a very strange layout because, again, there's one guy that has a piece of land, never wanted to sell, and forced the taxiway to close into the runway. But that also meant that for a long time, they couldn't have lending and taxiing at the same time because they were too close. It was not safe. Oh the guys God. even, the guys even built a tower, a steel tower on that terrain so that the clearance would not be sufficient for uh, airplanes to taxi. So that they have to even like further put the taxiway of, further afield from that land, making it, of course, closer to the uh, runway. I love it. The other, <laughs> <laughs> there's a system of underpass. Again, if on Google Maps, you'll probably see it. You might not have thought about it, but the system of the underpasses, because these guys have to have access to the rest of Japan. They can be like landlocked into the airport. So they have basically a road for themselves that go under the runway and appears on the other side and that allows them to go back and forth freely. They actually still are farming. There's even a shop, a grocery store there for people who live there that relentlessly don't want to give up and it was still there. There's where the third runway was supposed to be. If you look at the airport, it should, it should have been a triangle if you want. You'll see again two little spots of land that the taxiways again avoid and this actually are in the right in the middle where the third runway. It's 
the story is just absolutely incredible. Uh, and this is not something that stopped in the 70s. You know, they built the Terminal 2, I think, in the 80s. The second railway was built uh, for basically the World Cup. It was just extended in time, so now it's slightly longer than it should because they bought land at the top end of, uh, of the runway, but it's still not a fully functioning second runway. For a long time, the train station that was supposed to be under Terminal 1 was not stopping under Terminal 1. You had to stop, either walk for 15 minutes or take a bus, which would cost you even more, with an additional security screening. So this is why for so I guess maybe your father, Alex, or people who used to fly before our era, this airport has not a great memory because it was always in high security control. It was very hard to get yeah. to. There's never been a Shinkansen, you know, a fast bullet train that goes to Narita because of the same things. They couldn't get the land to go there. It's amazing. <laughs> they, so, it? so the train back then, even when I used to live there, the train would take an hour and a half to go to, to, to Tokyo. Now it's much faster. I'll go there in a minute. I said it's not something that is completely gone. Of course, there's been less, you know, riots. We haven't seen this level of aggression, sorry to use that term, probably in the 70s and the 80s. But still, in 2002, they found two mortars in the woods next to Narita. <laughs> Uh, well, so wait, when when were those mortars from? From World War II? We're not talking about stuff that you see like in modern warfare right. or something. But still, the fact that they were found there, they were not just abandoned from World War II. They were found probably as a mean of potentially disrupting. Oh, Maybe they see, were that's what I was. That's left. what I was wondering. Maybe they were leftovers from the era that the protests were happening in the 70s and the 80s. There always been like some little, you know moments of tensions along the years even now that the farmers are all getting much older i don't want to fight anymore but they're still not yeah. selling their land yeah <laughs> uh and you remember maybe that was because it's a very impressive image when the fedex plane crashed in 2009 mm. there was this, a fedex crash in narita and it's really because of lots of wind the fact that they had to close down the entire Narita was because of all these strange taxiways, the fact that the two runways couldn't work at the same time, because etc. So it's a it's a, an airport that is also very uh, badly managed in cases of disruption because they had to go around all this mess. So now, is it a good airport <laughs> after all this story? Uh, it's not Shangi, it's not Incheon. It should have been. Mm. If you look at the plants back in the 60s, that's what they wanted. They wanted this Asian hub that was never to be in the end. They've made some efforts. Uh, terminal 1 is separated in two terminals. The terminal 1 South, Terminal 1 North. North is basically Sky Team, and South is basically Star. Terminal 2 is one world with a few others, like uh, Emirates. It's been slightly expanded. Some of the people like me will remember a people mover. It doesn't exist anymore. Now there's a walkway. There's more restaurants now than there used to be, but it's still very... What was your impression, Alex, when you landed at Haneda? Did you find it a very in-your-face airport, very grand, or did you find it very subdued? It's pretty subdued and, and functional. Yeah, it wasn't as ostentatious as some of the airports I've been to. That's the exact feeling you'll have in Narita. It's 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 efficient, but it's not beautiful. They made an effort. Now they're like a fake village, you know, when you can have like Japanese food. The food is really excellent, by the way. Obviously, you're in Japan. So they made some effort, but it's still more functional than anything. Yeah. There's a new terminal, Terminal 3, which is a low-cost terminal. It's a bit of a joke because the landing fees in Narita are so high because of all that stuff they're having, all the security things they have to have. 
uh, even currently, that they will never be able to remove the landing fees to a level that really is a low-cost airport. Mm. But still, what they did is there's no signage, there's no lightning signage. All the signage is actually decals, so it's actually stuck on the ground or on oh, the or painted on the walls. Or you remember there was this track, like track and field, you know, because it said this is a way to tell you where to go without having to use a lot of expensive signage uh, with uh, lightning electricity. So Clever. that's a... Does that mean that they will be able to expand it as they wish? I think, you know, maybe at some point, some of these um, farmers will end up selling. I don't know. Uh, they will end up dying at some point. I'm not sure their 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 progeny want to take over the fight <laughs> forever. Uh, but this is the reason why, Alex, starting where we started, uh, Haneda has taken international flights because at some point in 2010 i think it was with the world cup they realized they say we're never gonna get there we're never we're gonna need another 40 years to build to expand yeah. narita and what he should have been so let's break the taboo because it was a taboo to have international flights in haneda i remember when i was there the international flights were basically to go to seoul that's pretty much it and pretty and maybe to shanghai so all the rest didn't exist so now they created that international terminal in uh, haneda to kind of balance because they realize that they're never going to get to that status they wanted for Narita. Narita is now easier to get access to, guys. If you go there, you can use the Skyliner. So the Skyliner is uh, a train that goes from Narita using parts of the roads that were supposed to be used for the, the Shinkansen, by the way. In about 40 minutes, it goes to Ueno, which is East Tokyo. Uh, Narita Express JR goes to Tokyo Station and then continues to Shibuya and Shinjuku. It takes about an hour to go to Tokyo. I prefer uh, the Narita Express. If you are a traveler and, and pre-bought your GR Pass, which is a way to have all the Japan Rail trains for free, you should, of course, take the Narita Express. The reason I say I prefer because a lot of people want to stay west, so Shinjuku and Shibuya, what you've discovered, oh, Alex, yeah. uh, last year. If you go to the Narita Express, you don't have to switch trains. You go to the same in an hour and 20 minutes, you're there. If you take the, the other train that seems faster because they tell you oh center of tokyo in 40 minutes then you still have to change and still have to add another half an hour on the subway system which skyliner offers as part of the deal you can have a free of ticket there as well the third option you've discovered it and you talked about it in uh, your episode on tokyo attache which i highly recommend because it's a really fun one the limousine bus uh, yep. if you don't want to get lost the big big advantage of limousine bus is the destinations are a lot of the destinations are hotels so you can simply say i want to go to the ana intercontinental and there you go or and that's also what i always say to people is like well if you are in an airbnb or in a smaller hotel just look on the map what's next biggest hotel just next to you and pick that as a destination for your limousine bus and then just walk the rest it's sometimes not as fast because it's dependent on traffic and traffic in tokyo at rush hour can actually make you arrive in two hours in the center but at least you don't have to think about will i make the wrong train yeah, et cetera, et cetera. i think that's a big nice. because the the transport system can be a little bit overwhelming the first time you use it so having that uh in your back pocket is is reassuring at the very least the last one um Alex, you remember you and me, we were on the top of the Mori Tower? Oh, yeah. So up to 2015, so sadly not for you, there was a helicopter service that would go from the Mori Tower to oh, Mori Oh, my God, that would have been so cool. <laughs> yeah, I've, done a, I've not done that. I've done another helicopter tour over Tokyo. It's really worth it, guys, if you can, if you can, uh, if you can do it. 
The other thing in Terminal 2, if you want to have that, uh, because we always ask the question, if it's a good for layovers, I would say go to Tokyo. But if you really have to stay for some reason, strange reasons, because you wouldn't, I think, do a layover in uh, in uh, Narita Airport, there's a capsule hotel in Terminal 2. So, you know, this experience a lot of foreigners want to have once in their lives in Japan. It's called Nine Hours. You can go there. It's pretty cheap. It's Terminal 2. You can sleep in one of these little capsules if you really have to stay. But honestly... With being at 30 minutes, even if it's not perfectly the center of Tokyo, whatever that means, if you have time, go to Tokyo, even for two hours and come back. You'll be so happy to have done it. Do not stay in the airport. Yeah. And because I think you're going to go there soon. You're going to go to Osaka Airport, right? KIX. Yes, we may fly into Tokyo. We haven't fixed our itinerary yet. But yes, we're going back to Japan in the coming months. You know that KIX is built on water. Yes. Uh, Like uh, HKG. They said, we don't want to have any other problem of having to have farmers or landowners making problems. That's the reason we have all these airports in Japan built that way. I'll finish one thing because you might not know that if you're not in Japan. There's another reason that Narita is known, that would make some people laugh, is Narita Divorce. So I learned that when I was living there, a lot of my local friends, Japanese friends, were telling me about Narita Divorce. I was like, what the hell is Narita Divorce? You get married, you go more often than not to Hawaii for your honeymoon. And when you finally spend time with your newlywed and you realize that because, you know, working hours in Japan is so crazy that you actually never actually really knew the person. You realize that the person is not really made for you and that uh, you don't want him or her anymore. And basically you divorce being back in Narita. So that's a term that is actually very well known. There are even courses, more often than not, it's the wife that wants to divorce the man because they say, oh, the man is useless. I thought the guy was some kind of chivalresque, you know, person that would actually help me figure out my way in Honolulu. So actually you have courses for Japanese how to be a good man. So how to talk to the driver of your cab, how to open the door of the hotel, how to book a restaurant and what you do and shouldn't do in order to avoid Narita divorces. A very popular service, guys. So that's another way (laughs) Narita is known. I was super long, guys. I'm so sorry. No, that was great. I mean, I don't think there are many other airports in the world with quite as colorful a story as that one. On that, Alex, uh, are you flying? I'm going to say no. Gonna <clears> no, I had two weeks. Uh, we head off to Hong Kong and Nishigaki, so I'm looking forward to that. Oh, God, I, Let's try to record before you go. Yes. Let's yeah, yeah, let's definitely. Try. We'll try. And I'm just flying to Madrid after tomorrow, 6.20 a.m. Oh, no, Madrid. You. At least it's again a 767. So that's oh, nice. BA, so at least I have that. So And this time in gold. But I'm not sure I will have a lot of time to enjoy that first class no, lounge, whatever, really because won't. 6.20... I just want to sleep in the plane or something. (laughs) On that, Alex, sorry I babbled too long today, and uh, see you next time. Safe travels, guys. (laughs) 